1: So episode 347 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, June 30th, 2022. It is the final day of the month of June, a month that is ending with a bang. In terms of Washington, D.C. sports news, think about it. Tuesday afternoon, we had the reports of the glorious commander's news, the commander's having agreed on a three-year contract extension with Terry McLaurin. Wednesday morning, we had reports of the Wizards having agreed on a big trade, a trade with the Denver Nuggets, Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Ish Smith to the Nuggets for Monte Morris and Will Barton. Wednesday afternoon, we had a report from ESPN that Bradley Beal has, in fact, opted out of his contract with the Wizards. Things are happening. As Jerry once told Babu, "The wheels are in motion; things are happening."
2: The wheels are in motion; things are happening. The wheels
1: are in motion. The wheels are in motion; things are happening. Yeah, the wheels are in motion; things are happening. We are happening on this Thursday installment of the Al Galdi Podcast. Good to have you with us. NBA free agency will begin on this Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, although already a whole lot of NBA news is broken. Uh, coming up, I will get into the very latest with our Wizards. Uh, this trade with the Nuggets, to me, is a good trade for our Wizards. Monte Morris, Will Barton, two very nice players, two guys who could be helping our Wizards quite a bit. It's okay to feel good about this trade uh, for the Wizards. I'll explain why. Uh, the Bradley Beal situation Uh, I don't know about you. I'm not feeling great about this. Uh, I don't know many Wizards fans who are feeling great about this. And of course, it's not that Bradley Beal is a bad player. He is not. Uh, It's not that Bradley Beal is a bad guy. He is not. But we're now one step closer to the Wizards potentially giving Beal a super max contract extension, a five-year contract extension for about $250 million per year. $50 $50 million per year for a non-elite player in a salary-capped league. Uh, I'm sorry. No, thank you. Uh, but yes, I do have a wizard segment for you to prepare you mentally, physically, spiritually for this day one of NBA free agency. Uh, next segment, I have a special guest for you. NFL agent and former Redskins salary cap analyst, J.I. Holsell. Uh, He will give us his insight on and a breakdown of the Terry McLaurin contract extension for the commanders. What should we think about this deal as an actual contract? Is this a good deal for both sides? Uh, Why is the extension only a three-year extension? What is the best way to truly evaluate a big money NFL contract. The answers to all of those questions are forthcoming. You'll also hear J.I.'s take on how the commanders are handling the salary cap now as compared to when he worked for the Skins. Uh, and you'll hear J.I.'s explanation for what's truly going on between the commanders and Deron Payne and J.I. and I will get into plenty more. Uh, J.I. Wholesale is outstanding at talking NFL contracts and at talking about the NFL salary cap. He will be with us next segment. Uh, And I'll talk Nationals and Orioles on the show, uh, off each team losing a day game on Wednesday. Uh, For the Nats, a bonkers 8-7 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates at Nationals Park, denying the Nats their first series sweep of the season. Uh, This game was nuts. We had controversy and confusion off the invoking of a rarely, and I mean rarely, cited rule in the MLB rulebook. Uh, We had a big-time boneheaded play by the Nats. Uh, We had a tremendous game for Josh Bell. We had terrible pitching by the Nats. We had a lot going on in this game. Uh, Meantime, the O's lost at the Seattle Mariners 9-3 to lose two or three games in the series, though we had more quality play from Cedric Mullins and Ryan Mountcastle. You know, each guy began his 2022 season in a bad way, but each guy has had quite the month of June. Mullins on Wednesday, another excellent catch in center field. Hey, water covers 71% of the earth's surface, the other 29% is covered by Cedric Mullins. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me the Al podcast at yahoo.com. Lots of feedback to the glorious Commanders news of Tuesday afternoon. The Commanders reportedly agreeing on a contract extension with Terry McLaurin. Tweet from Luke: Huge, absolutely deserved. Let's go. Tweet from Phil: I can finally purchase a Terry jersey. Yes, you can, Phil. Yes, you can. Uh, tweet from Taj Wilson: This is a good deal for both sides. Actually, leaves the Commanders a lot of room to extend others, or maybe give someone in the last year of his deal a new contract. Not saying that they should, but this leaves a lot of room to operate. Email from Jim D: We did it! <laughs> we did it! Now the season can really begin. On to training camp. Hail to the MFn Commanders! Uh, thank you for that email. Jim D. You see, right there is a happy Commanders fan. Email from Kevin, couldn't be happier about the extension for Terry. You've been preaching patience for weeks, but I had already hit the panic button after the minicamp miss. With Terry and John Allen re-signed, it feels like we have homegrown franchise players on both sides of the ball. I can't remember a time like this since the days of Stephen Davis and LeVar Arrington, a time when I was about eight years old. I had concerns that the team saw a Terry contract as a luxury given the potential depth we have at receiver with Jahan Dodson, Curtis Samuel, De'Ami Brown, Cam Sims, Dax Milne, and our tight end room. Very happy that those concerns ended up being unfounded. To all Washington fans, rejoice. We've won the offseason again, but unironically this time Hashtag scary Terry fever. Uh, Thank you for the email, Kevin. Yeah, personally, I never bought into the idea that the commanders took Jahan Dodson in the first round of the 2022 NFL draft to be Terry McLaurin's replacement. The Dodson pick to me was about adding a receiver who the team really likes in a league now in which, of course, passing offense matters like never before. The commanders have the potential to be very good at receiver for years to come. You think about Terry McLaurin... And Curtis Samuel and Jahan Dotson, three talented guys, three young guys. I mean, that right there has the potential to be a very nice top three at receiver. Now, of course, there are caveats, right? Curtis Samuel needs to stay healthy. Jahan Dotson at this point is unproven as an NFL receiver. But to me, it's not a stretch to look at McLaurin, Samuel, and Dotson and think that the team could have its best top three at receiver since 2016, when the Redskins had Pierre Garçon, Deshaun Jackson, and Jamison Crowder. The Redskins' passing offense in 2016 was elite. Wouldn't it be nice if the Commanders' 2022 passing offense was elite? Well, the law firm of Paulson and Nace is elite. If you or someone who you care about has been wronged and you are or that someone is in need of legal representation, do not hesitate to contact the law firm of Paulson and Nace. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is widely respected throughout Washington, D.C. and West Virginia for the firm's accomplishments both in and out of courtrooms. Chris Nace and Matt Nace are dedicated trial attorneys who do not balk in the face of large insurance companies or well-known businesses whose practices or products are directly related to the root of your harm. Paulson and NACE does not accept low settlement offers that benefit the people who caused clients harm more than the offers benefit the clients. Paulson and NACE is not afraid to take a case to trial. Paulson and NACE wins trials. Paulson and NACE has secured millions of dollars in verdict and settlement amounts for clients to better enable them to care for themselves and their families. Again, if you have a case, contact Paulson and And Nace, if you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. Call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. 7611. You can also visit Paulsonandnace.com. That's Paulsonandnace.com. Just make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace. If you're the case, contact Paulson and Nace. A shout out to all of you who have given this podcast a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Much appreciated. Also, thank you to all of you who have written reviews of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. These things help us out a lot. If you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, please consider doing so. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can just tap the five stars for the five star rating and you can write a simple one or two cents review saying that you like the podcast. And again, Much appreciated. The commanders on Tuesday afternoon agreeing with Terry McLaurin on a contract extension was great news for so many reasons. Uh, Let us now conduct a proper breakdown of the extension and get into a few other commanders items with a special guest. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Al Galdi podcast. NFL agent and former Redskins salary cap analyst, J.I. Hulso. Uh, He worked for the Skins as a salary cap analyst from March 2007 to January 2009. He is a local. He went to Gonzaga College High School in Washington, D.C. You can follow J.I. on Twitter at SalaryCap101. J.I., it's great to talk to you. How are you?
2: I'm doing well, man. I appreciate you having me on as always.
1: I appreciate you coming on. So the Terry McLaurin contract extension with the commanders, the deal got done. Uh, The reported terms, a three-year extension worth up to about $71 million, $28 million signing bonus, which is the biggest signing bonus ever for an NFL receiver. And the deal includes about $53 million in guarantees. Uh, What are your major impressions of the deal?
2: I mean, it's a deal that You've got to get done from a club perspective. Um, I'm not surprised that it got done. Um, When you're building a roster and you you look at who Terry is, both on the field and in the locker room, um, and the message that it sends to the other players in the locker room, that a core player who you drafted, you've now extended and you you paid a, a market value for, I think all of those things add up to being a really good deal for the organization and obviously a good deal for
1: uh, Terry. When you look at a big money contract extension, what do you put the most importance on? Guaranteed money, money guaranteed at signing, average annual value, uh, money over the first few seasons. What is the J.I. Wholesale methodology for breaking down a big money NFL contract? Obviously, you put the most importance on uh, the guarantee and the guarantee structure, probably more
2: importantly. Um, I know we... It's easy for us to get caught up in the average per year, which in Terry's case is a little over $23 million per year. But as we all know, these deals naturally are not guaranteed. And therefore, any amount or whatever amount you get truly guaranteed or can become truly guaranteed in a in short order is probably the most important mechanism of the contract. After that, I would say probably the length of the deal, and with this being a three-year extension – Terry actually will get another opportunity to get another bite at the proverbial apple pretty quickly here. Um, So, those are probably the two things uh, the guarantee structure, the length of the deal, and then what I didn't mention is probably the three year cash, but that's not really applicable here since it's only a three year extension. So, um, those are probably the most important metrics when you assess these deals.
1: Yeah, so with the Terry McLaurin contract extension, with the Commanders only being a three-year extension and not for a longer term, uh, did that surprise you?
2: It's actually kind of a trend that you've recently seen with a lot of these extensions, because I think it's become more popular from the player-agent side of this to uh, do what I just said. Have your client get back to the market uh, as quickly as possible, given the expected rise in the salary cap. Um, You don't want to, from an agent perspective, lock your client into a deal for such a long period of time that now the market has significantly passed them by um, and they're precluded from taking advantage of the cap increases. On the flip side of that, from a club perspective, if we were to play this out, so we know that here in 22, Terry was already under contract. In 23, that's his first new year. If the trajectory of his career keeps on going kind of at the same pace, by the time we get to 2024, which is the second new year of this deal, we could be having these same conversations all over again about Terry McLaurin and what's his market value, should he get an extension. And so from a club perspective, you're like, well, wait a minute, why did I just give him nearly 50 or $50 million guaranteed only to have to probably have this conversation again? in two years and if he's continuing to play at a high pace we're definitely having this conversation in three years as he heads into the final year of this extension uh which would be 2025 so um clubs tend to like these deals to be
1: longer but again the trend you've seen are shorter extensions The bulk of the money in the Terry McLaurin contract extension with the commanders is guaranteed in some form. Again, the reports are that the extension is worth up to about $71 million and includes about $53 million in guaranteed money. Now, we know that there is a difference between money that is fully guaranteed at signing versus money that comes in the form of of guarantees as the contract goes on. But is this where we are headed with big money contracts for star NFL players, even non-quarterbacks now, higher and higher percentages of contracts being guaranteed in some way? I think
2: that both the club side and the agent side, they know there are metrics on, on this, like what percentage of the total guy you could deal is guaranteed, right? And yet you've seen that percentage begin to creep up but again, there are a lot of other kind of nuances, and like I said earlier, the mechanics of the guarantee. So in in, in Terry's deal, uh, it's being reported that it's thirty four point six million fully guaranteed at signing, right? And so that means there's another twelve and a half that becomes fully guaranteed in March of next year. That conceivably Washington could get out of, but at that point, you've basically paid you know, $34 million guaranteed for one year to a player. So there's, there's a lot of nuance in terms of the mechanics. And so, again, we can get caught up in what percentage of the deal is quote-unquote guaranteed, but the devil is in the details in terms of, well, how does the player actually get to that fully guaranteed
1: amount? We're talking Terry McLaurin contract extension and other commander's items with NFL agent and former Redskins salary cap analyst, J.I. Wholesale. As you well know, contracts in sports can be as much about who has the leverage as the contracts are about the quality of the players. Is the nature of the Terry McLaurin contract extension with the commanders commensurate with this idea of him having had the leverage in this situation or not so much?
2: I wouldn't term it significant leverage, but Terry did have a level of leverage. Again, given you know what he means to that locker room, given his productivity on the field, when I look at when I look at deals, I try to identify okay, what can the team hang their hat on versus what can the agent and player hang their hat on, because oftentimes you know you're you're trading you know in exchange for the length of the deal uh, that the team or the agent may want uh, the team or club gets the average per year that they want in this particular deal when you look at the wide receiver market prior to Terry getting his deal done there was a gap between Stefan Giggs 24 million average per year and DJ Moore's 20.6 right so from an average per year standpoint my sense is Washington wanted to come in somewhere in that four million dollar gap the fact that they came in a little bit closer to Diggs as opposed to Moore tells me that the agent and player, Terry McLaurin, got closer to the APY that they wanted, but on top of that, they got the length of the deal that they wanted because, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, we could be having this Terry McLaurin contract conversation two years from now and definitely we'll be having it three years from now um, as he gets another bite at the apple. So it tells me that Washington was willing to give a little bit more than they probably were comfortable giving in exchange for securing a player who is a core part of what they are trying to build both on the field and in the locker.
1: Yeah, and that obviously makes total sense. What did you think about Terry McLaurin no-showing the commander's three-day mandatory minicamp?
2: No, I mean, you know, you're making a business decision both in terms of the stance you're taking uh, in regard to your contract negotiation and also you're trying to manage risk right mitigate risk, you know They know who Terry McLaurin is. Um, he knows the scheme. He doesn't need to be out there He doesn't need those drafts. He doesn't need to go out there and risk entry um, particularly in the middle of a contract negotiation um, so It was not surprised. No, it's just part of the deal um, when it comes to
1: Trying to make sure that you mitigate risk and you don't do anything to uh, damage your contract negotiation position. So, Washington now, over the last 18 months, has gotten contract extensions done with a number of significant players uh, Chase Roulier, Jonathan Allen, Logan Thomas, Charles Leno Jr., and now Terry McLaurin, once he officially signs his extension. We also have something like what happened with J.D. McKissick this past March, him reneging on an agreement on an unrestricted free agent contract with a Super Bowl contender in the Buffalo Bills in order to re-sign with the Commanders and for the same terms to which he had agreed with the Bills. Should we see all of this as a sign that the Commanders are perhaps more of a desirable team for NFL players than people make the team out to be? Not that the Commanders are some NFL heaven, but that they're maybe not so bad? Or are you not buying into that notion?
2: Yeah, I think from a pure roster management standpoint, you know, they've come light years from where they were. You, know, if you think back 10, 15 years ago when I was working with the organization as an example. Um, you know, in terms of showing patience, in terms of being mm-hmm. measured in uh, who they sign and how much they sign players for, I think it's very easy for all of us to get distracted by all the other non-roster management things that are obviously floating around the organization right now. Um, when you put all of the non-football stuff aside, um, and as you think about am I, if I'm a free agent, do I want to go to Washington? Do you have to take into consideration ownership? Do you have to take into consideration the, the recent track record of the team and uh, stability and all those pieces? Absolutely. But I would tell you that from a pure roster management standpoint, they've done a great job of trying to build through the draft, trying to re sign their own as they've done with Jonathan Allen and Ter- now Terry McLaurin. Um, they've done a great job of not giving out big guarantees in free agency. Um, so, Again, you can get blinded by the non-football stuff around this organization, but from a pure roster management
1: standpoint, uh, they've, done, they've done a great job. Regarding the non-football stuff with the Commanders, it obviously has been a turbulent last few months for the Commanders with you know the very mixed reaction to the new name, and the workplace misconduct scandal, and the financial scandal, and congressional involvement with the scandals, and the Jack Del Rio situation, and the stadium situation, something as universally well-received as the commanders getting this contract extension with Terry McLaurin done. Is there true value in that? Like, when we talk about a public relations win for an NFL team, especially one in dire need of PR wins as the commanders are, Is that a real thing, a big PR victory, having true value to an NFL team?
2: I mean, the the best public relations is winning football games, right? Um, And Terry McLaurin's a big piece in helping you win football games. And so while particularly in the month of June and July, when there's not a ton of NFL news going on, to keep the fan base engaged, um, it's great to have a story like a Terry McLaurin extension. Um, But whether we're talking about all of the non-football stuff, whether we're talking about the PR uh, positivity around a Terry McCorn extension, again, at the end of the day, the best
1: PR is winning football games, and Terry is a big part of that. The Terry McLaurin contract extension with the Commanders is, of course, just the latest big money deal for an NFL receiver this offseason. Receivers are getting paid like never before. Is this a bubble that's going to burst, or is this a new normal in what is obviously a pass-happy NFL?
2: Well, you do have a little bit of precedent around this in that there was a period probably about five years or so ago where running backs were even getting Pretty good money when you think about the Zeke Elliott deals of the world. And now those guys aren't really getting paid, um, you know, after the Christian McCaffrey deal. Um, could you see the same thing in the wide receiver market? I think you could. Um, you know, it'll be, this is really the first offseason where it's been noticeable how much wide receivers are getting paid. And so now there's going to be that much more of an emphasis on. Uh, evaluating the rookie wide receivers or your young wide receivers who are rookie contracts to see how productive are they relative to their high higher priced peers um, you know who are veterans uh, because if you look at the New Orleans Saints as an example right they got Jarvis Landry for like three million and I think through incentives he has the ability to get up to six million that's a far cry from Christian Kirk in Jacksonville making $18 million. So the question becomes, how do I merge this valuation against the evaluation of a player? And does the dollars and cents make sense? And um, it'll be interesting to see um, if the wide receiver market continues to be where it's at today, or do we see it kind of come back down like we've seen the running back market?
1: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I have two non-Terry McLaurin items for you. Duran Payne he's entering a contract season. All indications are that the commanders aren't trying to sign him to a contract extension this offseason, and yet indications also are that the commanders aren't interested in trading Payne this offseason. What do you make of how the commanders are playing the Duran Payne situation? Yeah, what I make of that is is that they're trying to keep all options on the
2: table for as long as possible. And from a roster management standpoint, that's the prudent, smart strategy, right? There's no reason, there's no need to commit to one particular alternative here right now. Um, I know you've drafted potentially Duran's successor, but you know while you still control his rights, while you obviously got him under the contract at eight and a half million dollars. Um, you know, you let him go out there as much as he wants to and play football while you control his rights. And, um, you know, conceivably could things change whereby now as an organization, you're thinking about extending him when here we are on June 29th, you you aren't currently thinking about extending him. Could you down the road think about, hey, maybe we can't get an extension done, but we're open to franchise tagging him. Um, there's a lot of alternatives here. Do you let him just play out the deal and then Uh, When he leaves in free agency, next year, you get a comp pick for him because he'll probably sign a a big money free agency deal. Um, Or if you don't want to wait until the comp pick uh, in 2024, uh, do you trade him for the trade deadline and and get a pick in the 2023 draft? So there's a lot of different alternatives that are on the table, and there's no need for the organization to,
1: to commit to any one of those right now. All right. And then a narrative from Rod Rivera this offseason has been that the commanders have not done more in the offseason because of the trade for Carson Wentz, that taking on Wentz's salary cap hit of $28.3 million has restricted what the commanders can do in free agency and via trade. Well, uh, that simply isn't true. The commanders, as you and I are speaking, have $17.9 million in effective salary cap space, Per OverTheCap.com. Now, I'm not necessarily mad that the commanders have not done more this offseason because, as we know, spending more doesn't always equate to doing better. But why do you think that the commanders haven't done more this offseason and are using this salary cap excuse, which pretty clearly isn't true?
2: Yeah, I think they're just being more measured. I think that they are being more deliberate in how they allocate their cap dollars. Um, you, you got quarterback who's counting 28.3 million against your cap it's not a horrible number um as you just mentioned they've got 17.9 million in space currently there's nothing wrong with you know with that 17.9 as you make it through uh this 2022 season if you can roll over a significant amount of that cap space as the salary cap increases that further puts you in a better position so that now as you got a quarterback in Carson Wentz whose cap numbers into the future are, are fairly reasonable to now then add pieces around Carson Wentz, both on the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball. I think they're just being great. They're just being measured in how they're allocating their cap dollars.
1: Yeah, and as we have come to learn over the years, uh, being measured can be a very good thing. NFL agent and former Redskins salary cap analyst, J.I. Wholesale, Follow him on Twitter at SalaryCap101. J.I., I always appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for your time and all the best to you. Thanks again, man. I appreciate it. All right. Good stuff from J.I. Wholesale. Up next, I'm talking Wizards, NBA free agency. We'll begin on Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, but the Wizards already have made a big move, reportedly agreeing on a trade with the Denver Nuggets. Uh, if you're like me and are a Wizards fan, you should like this trade. I'll explain why straight ahead. Well, eating healthy, it's something that we would all like to do, but it's not something that's always easy, enjoyable, and affordable to do. This is where Factor comes in. Factor is a meal delivery plan that provides you with healthy, delicious, and affordable food, and you right now can save $120. On Factor meals just by being a listener of this podcast. Whether you're trying to get or stay lean or you're trying to put on muscle, Factor gets the job done and saves you hours per week in that you don't have to worry about food shopping, cooking, or doing dishes. Factor provides you with prepared meals that are fresh, never frozen. Uh, we're talking food from animals that are grass fed and pasture raised, food that is antibiotic, hormone, and preservative free. Factor meals are put together by registered dietitians and expert chefs who work hand in hand to create meals with nutritious ingredients. The meals are delicious. You'll have a hard time believing that they're actually good for you. And Factor offers 30 meals per week. You can choose from a variety of new meals every week, so you'll never get bored. Uh, Like many of you, I try to eat healthy. I go to the gym. I eat Factor meals. They're terrific. And you can't beat the convenience. Each Factor meal arrives pre-prepared and ready to eat in two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. You can't beat this. So here's a special offer. Visit Go factor75.com slash GaldY120 and use the code GALDI120 to get off. Yeah, you heard that right. $120 off. Who couldn't use an extra $120 right now with gas prices and inflation? That's go.factor75.com slash GALDI120 and use the code GALDI120 to get $120 off. Give Factor a try. Eat well, save yourself time and money. Visit go.factor75.com slash GALDI120 and use the code Galdi 120 to get $120 off. You got to try Factor because fitness starts with food. All right, let us talk some wizards. I said, let us talk some wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, Stephen A. Smith. Thank you. The Wizards Uh, NBA free agency will begin on Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, It is then that NBA teams may begin negotiating with free agents from other teams, although it is not until July 6th at 12.01 p.m. Eastern that NBA teams can begin actually signing free agents from other teams to contracts. But the Wizards on Wednesday morning started their party early uh, by reportedly agreeing on a major trade with the Denver Nuggets. The Wizards are sending Kentavious Caldwell-Pope and Ish Smith to the Nuggets for Monte Morris and Will Barton. Uh, the trade cannot become official until the NBA's new league year begins. That will be again on July 6th at 12.01 p.m. Eastern. But yeah, the trade is going down. Uh, Monte Morris is a point guard. Will Barton is a small forward, uh not that positions that aren't point guard really matter in the NBA anymore, but I like this trade. I actually like it quite a bit. The Wizards of course needed a point guard. Uh they also needed better three-point shooting and they for seemingly forever have needed guys who are willing to play defense. Well, the Wizards are addressing all of these things with this trade and Wizards head coach Wes Unsell Jr. knows Monte Morris and Will Barton well. Wes Unsell Jr. was an assistant for the Denver Nuggets for six seasons, 2015-2016 through 2020-2021. He, in December 2020, was promoted to associate head coach for the Nuggets. So West Jr. was with the Nuggets for each of Monte Morris's first four seasons with the team, 2017-2018 through 2020-2021, and for six of Will Barton's seven full seasons with the team, 2015-2016 through 2020-2021. The Wizards this past season ended up being like a chemistry experiment that went horribly wrong. The team had a bunch of new players, and the mix ended up being really bad. That's why the Wizards in February traded away two guys in Spencer Dinwiddie and Montrezl Harrell, who the Wizards had just acquired the previous August. Well, the Wizards and Monte Morris and Will Borton are getting guys who Wes Unsell Jr. knows and can trust. And these guys can play. Uh, Monte Morris is young and under team control for two seasons. Uh, this upcoming season will be Monte Morris's age 27 season. He has two seasons left on his contract, 2022-2023, $9.13 million, 2023-2024, $9.8 million. Uh, Monte Morris is a good three-point shooter. He has shot 39.4% on threes, over 280 Career NBA regular season games. He in the 2021-2022 NBA regular season shot 39.5% on threes and that wasn't over some like tiny sample size. Uh, Morris in the 2021-2022 NBA regular season went 124 for 314 on threes. He has been a very productive player. The Nuggets took Morris in the second round of the 2017 NBA draft out of Iowa State. He spent a good chunk of the 2017-2018 season playing in the G League. He then was the Nuggets backup point guard for the next 3 seasons, 2018-2019 through 2020-2021, and then Morris in the 2021-2022 regular season played in 75 games with 74 starts. This was because the Nuggets' primary point guard, Jamal Murray, suffered a torn left ACL in April 2021. So, obviously, Morris's raw stats for the 2021-2022 season were markedly higher than those stats from previous seasons due to him being a starter. He was playing more minutes, but his rate stats were largely unchanged. Consider Monte Morris through the prism of something that I like to look at a lot per 100 possession averages. Uh, Per 100 possession averages are great ways of normalizing NBA stats and accounting For increased or decreased playing time. Monte Morris over his first four NBA regular seasons had the following per 100 possession averages, 20.4 points, 7.2 assists versus 1.4 turnovers, 4.4 rebounds, 1.7 steals. Well, Monte Morris in the 2021-2022 regular season had the following per 100 possession averages, 20.7 points, 7.3 assists versus 1.7 turnovers, 5.0 rebounds, 1.2 steals. The per 100 possession averages remained about the same. Monte Morris is a productive player. Also, Monte Morris plays defense. One of the great all-encompassing advanced NBA stats out there is ESPN's real plus-minus metric. Monte Morris for the 2021-2022 regular season, it was number nine among all qualified point guards in the NBA in ESPN's real plus minus metric. And he was number one among all qualified point guards in the NBA in ESPN's defensive real plus minus metric. There were not a ton of great options for the Wizards in terms of realistically available veteran point guards this summer. Uh, Free agent point guards were set to include guys like Jalen Brunson of the Dallas Mavericks and Ricky Rubio of the Cleveland Cavaliers and Tyus Jones of the Memphis Grizzlies. This is not a great class of free agent point guards. Uh, The trade market for point guards would seem to include, say, DeJounte Murray of the San Antonio Spurs, Malcolm Brogdon of the Indiana Pacers, Mike Conley Jr. of the Utah Jazz. But of course, to trade for someone, you have to give up an asset or assets. And in the case of DeJounte Murray, the Wizards seemingly would have had to have given up a whole lot. And we on Wednesday afternoon had multiple reports that Murray is being traded to the Atlanta Hawks for a whole lot. Uh, So to me, Monte Morris makes a lot of sense for a number of reasons. As for Will Barton, so the 2022-2023 season will be Barton's age 32 season. He is a bit of an older player. He also only has one season left on his contract, 2022-2023, $14.38 million. But Will Barton, like Monty Morris, is a good three-point shooter. Barton over his last three NBA regular seasons, has shot 37.2% on threes. And he has been a productive starter for the Nuggets. Uh, Barton was a starter for the Nuggets for each of his last four seasons with the team. He, over those four regular seasons, had the following per-game averages. 31.2 minutes per game, 13.7 points per game, 5.0 rebounds per game, 3.5 assists versus 1.6 turnovers per game. Also, Will Barton like Monte Morris, shines bright under the spotlight of ESPN's real plus minus metric. Barton for the 2021-2022 regular season, it was number eight among all qualified small forwards in the NBA in ESPN's real plus minus metric and was number two among all qualified small forwards in the NBA in ESPN's defensive real plus minus metric. He like Monty Morris, can play defense. Imagine that for our Wizards, who, with the exceptions of a few seasons under then-head coach Randy Whitman, have been horrible defensively, seemingly forever. Uh, also, for whatever this is worth, uh, Will Barton is from the Mid-Atlantic region. He is from Baltimore, played part of his high school career at National Christian Academy in Fort Washington, Maryland. This is an upgrade for the Wizards. Contavious Caldwell Pope and Ish Smith to the Nuggets for Monte Morris, and Will Barton. And I say that with respect for Contavious Caldwell Pope and Ish Smith. I mean, KCP can play defense, no doubt. And Ish Smith, I mean, I'm going to miss the assist to turnover ratio of Ish Smith. Ish Smith in the 2021-2022 regular season played in 28 games for the Wizards. He had 146 assists versus just 42 turnovers. Uh, By the way, Ish Smith's contract doesn't guarantee until July 1st, but if he plays for the Nuggets, he will set the NBA record for most franchises played for with 13. That's nuts. Uh, You know, the Wizards do not have much room with which to work if, in fact, they are not willing to pay the luxury tax. Unless the Wizards make some more trades and or are willing to pay the luxury tax the Wizards don't have the room to make big splashes in free agency this summer. Uh, the Wizards do have the mid-level exception and the biannual exception, which are two means of signing free agents while being in a tight salary cap situation. But otherwise, nobody is expecting the Wizards to be a uh, major playa player in free agency this year. And so a trade of significance by the Wizards was what we were expecting. And if you are a Wizards fan, you almost certainly know that Wizards president and general manager Tommy Shepard has not been afraid to shake things up. Uh, December 2020, right? Traded John Wall and a protected first round pick to the Houston Rockets for Russell Westbrook. Uh, August 2021, the five-team mega trade, with the Los Angeles Lakers, Brooklyn Nets, San Antonio Spurs, and Indiana Pacers. So the Wizards in that trade dealt Russell Westbrook to the Lakers and acquired Spencer Dinwiddie, Kyle Kuzma, Kentavious Caldwell Pope, and Montrez Harrell. Uh, NBA trade deadline day this past February. Tommy made three trades, including two major trades. Dealt Spencer Dinwiddie and Dobby's Bertans to the Dallas Mavericks for Chris Stapps-Porzingis in a protected 2022 second-round pick. And dealt Montrez Harrell to the Charlotte Hornets for a guard, Smith. Ford's last center, Vernon Carey Jr., a conditional second-round draft pick in 2023 or 2024, and a trade exception. Now we have this trade for Monty Morris and Will Barton. And who knows? Maybe more change for the Wizards is coming. I would not dismiss that as a possibility. Keep in mind, Kyle Kuzma has a $13 million player option for the 2023-2024 season. So he is a lock to opt out next summer. If the Wizards don't feel like they can or want to pay Kuzma... Uh, don't be surprised if Kuzma gets traded this summer. Uh, The Wizards are getting close to having to decide whether to give Rui Hachimura a significant contract extension. I would not be stunned if he got dealt this offseason. We shall see. Of course, the big thing that's coming for the Wizards in free agency is the Bradley Beal situation. And we on Wednesday afternoon had movement. In the Bradley Beal situation, as we got word that he has opted out of his contract. We got a Woj bomb, in fact. Tweet from ESPN NBA insider Adrian Wojnarowski on Wednesday afternoon. Quote, Washington Wizards star Bradley Beal has declined. His $36.4 million option and become a free agent, his agent Mark Bartlestein of Priority Sports tells ESPN Beal is eligible to sign a five-year max to return to Wizards or sign elsewhere on a four-year deal, end quote. So, of course, the widespread expectation for months has been that Beal will exercise the player option in his contract to become an unrestricted free agent, but he also will re-sign with the Wizards. Uh, They can offer him a lot more money as a free agent than another NBA team can because of the league's rules on re-signing players. The belief has been that the Wizards are going to give Beal a super max contract extension, a five-year extension worth around $250 million. It is worth noting this. The Wizards don't have to give Beal the full supermax extension. I do wonder if they might be able to do a Beal extension for less than full supermax extension value, like say, I don't know, $220 million or $230 million. But yeah, a 200 plus million dollar contract extension for Bradley Beal is coming. And a full supermax contract extension for Bradley Beal may well end up happening. And I've talked about this. Bradley Beal is a good player and seems to be a good dude, but he in no way is worthy of a super max contract extension. He has declined big time as a three-point shooter. And as we all know, three-point shooting is huge in today's NBA he is a mediocre defender, and bottom line, he has led the Wizards to nothing of prominence over a decade in a league in which one guy can lead a team to prominence. The Wizards haven't advanced past the second round of the NBA playoffs since 1979. The Wizards haven't won at least 50 games in a regular season since the 1978-79 season. Beale is a good player, but he's not an elite player, and the second that he signs this extension, especially if it ends up being a full Supermax extension, that deal becomes a bad NBA contract. That deal becomes maybe among the worst contracts in the NBA, depending on how he plays. It's amazing to me how many bad contracts the Bullets slash Wizards have signed over the years and that they're now about to jump right back into another potentially bad contract Is just crazy when you think about it. But consider all of the regrettable contracts that our Bullets slash Wizards have signed players to over the years. The Jawan Howard contract, the Gilbert Arenas contract, the Jan Mahinmi contract, the John Wall contract, the Otto Porter Jr. contract, the Davis Bertans contract. Uh, The Spencer Dinwiddie contract ended up looking bad as last season went on. And now here we are again as we're about to get the Bradley Beal contract, what may well be his third max contract with the Wizards. Think about that. Three max contracts for the same guy. The NBA is a funny league, man. Oftentimes, NBA teams give players mega money contracts, not because teams really want to give those players mega money contracts, but because teams feel like they have to give players mega money contracts. Uh, that to me is not good for the NBA. But this does seem to be the case with the Bradley Beal situation. The Wizards have put themselves in this situation. They could have traded Beal along the way. They chose not to. And now they feel like they have to give close to $50 million per year to a guy who is, say, a top 30 player in the NBA, uh, but is not a top 10 player in the NBA. The problem for the Wizards right now is that their realistic ceiling Still is less than 50 regular season wins, especially with the Eastern Conference finally appearing to be good again. The Wizards remain stuck in this land of mediocrity, and that is the worst place to be in the NBA. You either want to be really good or really bad so that you can get really good. And the onus is on Tommy Shepherd this offseason to figure out a way to raise this realistic ceiling for the Wizards. I don't know how realistic that is, raising the realistic ceiling, but thumbs up on the trade for Monte Morris and Will Barton. Uh, The Wizards beyond Bradley Beal are set to have other players as unrestricted free agents. Uh, Thomas Bryant, Thomas Sadoransky, Haul Neto. I would not be surprised if all three of those guys were gone. Uh, The Wizards principal restricted free agents are set to be Anthony Gill and Cassius Winston. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. Uh, They, on Wednesday afternoon, had perhaps their craziest game of the season so far. The game included controversy. The game included a major base-running boo-boo. The game included lots of good hitting. And the game included lots of bad pitching. The details, straight ahead. Well, we on Wednesday afternoon at Nationals Park had a wild and crazy game between two bad baseball teams. It was a wacky Wednesday in Washington for the Nationals and the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Nats were seeking their first series sweep of the season. Uh, The Nats were denied that sweep. An 8-7 loss to the Pirates at Nationals Park. The game took three hours, 48 minutes. At least one run was scored in nine Of the 18 half innings in the game, the fifth inning by itself featured a bizarre play to end the top of the fifth and then a bizarre play to end the bottom of the fifth. Uh, Just an odd strange day at Nationals Park. Uh, The Nats are back to being 20 games below 500 in the 2022 regular season, 29 and 49. Uh, They have the second worst record in the National League and have the worst run differential in the NL at minus 109. The Pirates have the second worst run differential in the NL at minus 101. So where to begin with this game on Wednesday afternoon? Well, I guess let's start with that fifth inning because each of the two strange plays in the inning proved to be costly to the Nats. So Steve Ciszek in this game faced just one batter. Uh, He threw just two pitches he got two outs. He in the top of the fifth recorded two outs on a double play on which the Pirates scored a run to tie the game at four. With runners on second and third and one out, Ciszek got Key Brian Hayes to line into a 3-5 double play. However, a run for the Pirates was allowed to score. And this was due to an arcane rule by which the Nats did not properly appeal the runner leaving third base too soon. You would think that what happened, the tagging of the trailing runner after the lineout, would have rendered moot the runner leaving third base too soon. But not so. The Nats left the field. They did not properly appeal the runner leaving third base too soon. And the run was allowed to score. Nobody knew what the heck was going on the Nats were confused, the Pirates were confused, everyone watching the game was confused. Now, it does appear as if this rule, dumb as it is, uh, was properly applied. So I'll give the umpires credit for that. But geez, uh, the confusion really was something. I mean, would it have killed the crew chief of the umpiring crew to have explained to the crowd and those of us watching the game at home what was going on? I mean, the announcers for the game, Dan Kolko and Kevin Franzen on Masson, didn't know what was going on, eventually figured things out. But, you know, we're now supposed to get at MOB games what we have gotten at NFL and NHL games for years. Officials talking to us, explaining to us what's happening. Boy, could we have used that here. We did not get anything in the way of that. Uh, here was Nats manager Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on what the heck happened.
3: I I don't know. I don't know how to say this nicely about that. Um, But once again, you know, um, they deem that uh, Adrianza never touched the base, um, which he clearly did. He touched the runner in the base, so therefore there was no appeal. So the run—they said the run scores in their judgment. Um, We couldn't appeal because we went off. We went off the field. Being that they called an out, I mean, inning's over. So what do you do? Stand on the field? No. And then all of a sudden, when Shelton came out, they they told uh, check to hold off. But so um, there we stand with the run scored. You know, I felt like we did everything right. We caught the ball. You know, he he threw it. He tagged the runner in the base. Um, they said he didn't touch the base. So. You been part of this rule before, like a play with this rule as a player manager? No, you know, I and mean, basically it's a fly ball that's caught. The runner doesn't tag. You, you throw the ball, tag third. The runner's out. Right. He, what they're telling me that he, they didn't see the, they didn't see touch third base. He tagged the runner, um, so we had to appeal it on the field I'll appeal it but because we went off the field you can't go back and appeal it so but like I said after they what do you do as a player when they, they said everybody's out right you run off the field so um, let the league handle that whole mess I and mean, it's it's getting a little bit annoying honestly that all of a sudden they, they never they never see anything so, so you also couldn't you also couldn't. review it not No. Nope. You, you can't review it. It's not reviewable. And it's your understanding that can tag the runner and tag the base? All yeah. The uh, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's a, it's a it's a it's a basically it's a fly ball, right? The runner has to tag. The runner goes back to. If, if he would have stood on third base, then it's a different scenario. But. Um, the whole deal was uh, third-base umpire or nobody, so Adrian just touched third base. And, he, and I asked him, and he said, no, he did not touch third base. I was going to bring a video in here, but I said, I won't do that, but so everybody can see it.
1: Yeah, so just a very unusual play that ended the top of the fifth. So we had the wacko play that ended the top of the fifth, and then we had a wacko play that ended the bottom of the fifth, what was a three-run fifth. For the Nats, Uh Cesar Hernandez capped the Nats three-run fifth with a two-out bases loaded opposite field RBI single to left field on a 1-2 pitch for a 6-4 Nats lead. But on the play was Yadiel Hernandez getting thrown out in trying to score from second base as Yadiel was running right behind the Nats player who did score on the play k Ruiz. Uh, This was like one of those plays that you would see on a blooper show back in the day. So you say, well, why was that? Why was Yadiel Hernandez so close to k Ruiz? Well, because Ruiz didn't realize (laughs) that there were two outs. And thus, he was waiting to tag up from third base on the play instead of running on contact. And thus, Yadiel had to wait up behind Ruiz. Just a major base running blunder by K. Bert Ruiz, who is a young player, but who really hasn't made much in the way of blunders so far in his major league career. So I don't want to hammer K. Ruiz too hard, but that was bad. Him not realizing that there were two outs, and he didn't have to tag up. You run on contact in a situation like that. Bases loaded, two outs. That should have been at least a two-run single for Cesar Hernandez. Instead, it was only a one-run single, and Yadiel Hernandez ended up being tagged out. Uh, You know, the Nats in this game hit like crazy and yet somehow lost the game. The Nats scored seven runs. The Nats totaled 16 hits. The Nats worked six walks. The Nats went seven for 14 with runners in scoring position. Go figure this series. The Nats over the first two games, a mere two for 22 with runners in scoring position and yet won both of those games. The Nats in this game three on Wednesday afternoon, seven for 14 with runners in scoring position and yet lost the game. Uh, but so many Nats had big games offensively. Josh Bell was a monster on Wednesday afternoon. Boy, does Bell kill his former team, the Pirates. Uh, Bell, on Wednesday afternoon, as the Nats' starting first baseman and number three batter, got on base five times. He went three for three with two doubles and a single and drew two walks. Uh, Bell, in the Nats' two-run first, had a two-out full count, hustle double to right center field. Tremendous play, by Bell. The hit looked like it was going to be a single, but because of Bell's hustle, he ended up getting a double. Uh, Bell, in the bottom of the second, drew a two-out, seven-pitch walk. Bell, in the Nats' three-run fifth, drew a lead-off, four-pitch walk. Bell, in the bottom of the sixth, had a one-out double to right field on a one-two pitch. Bell, in the bottom of the eighth, had a two-out single to right field. Josh Bell, in this series, six for ten, with three doubles, three singles, and three walks. And he's now having a 300, 400, 500 season. Josh Bell now, for the 2022 regular season, has the following slash line. Batting average of 319 on base percentage of 402, slugging percentage of 507. What a season Josh Bell is having. Let me make this clear. He is by far the most deserving Nationals player to be on the National League All-Star team. Whether he makes it, who knows, but he is the most deserving that to be an NL All-Star this season. Remember, every major league team is required to have at least one representative on an All-Star team. And of course, the other thing here is August 2nd, the MLB trade deadline. And the price for Josh Bell would appear to be rising with every hit and every walk that this guy generates. Uh, Yadiel Hernandez on Wednesday afternoon had a big hit for a second straight game. Yadiel in the 3-1 win over the Pirates at Nationals Park on Tuesday night in the Nats' two-run eighth, a pinch, two-out, two-run double, off the right field warning track for a 3-1 Nats lead. Yadiel on Wednesday afternoon as the Nats starting left fielder and number seven batter, two for five with a solo homer and an RBI double. Uh, Yadiel in the Nats three-run fifth had a one-out RBI double off the right field scoreboard for a 5-4 Nats lead. Yadiel in the Nats one-run seventh, a two-out first pitch opposite field solo homer to left field to cut the Nats deficit to 8-7. Yadiel Hernandez had a really nice series, four for 10 with four extra base hits, a home run and three doubles. Uh, Nelson Cruz on Wednesday afternoon got on base four times. He was an ad starting DH in number four batter, went two for three with an RBI single, an infield single, and two walks. The RBI single coming in the Nats two run first. A two out first pitch RBI opposite field single through the right side of the infield to cut the Nats deficit to 2 1. You know, I mentioned K. Bear Ruiz. He had the major base running blunder, no doubt, but he did have an active game on Wednesday afternoon. Ruiz as the Nats starting catcher and number six batter, two for four with two RBI singles, a walk, a stolen base, and he threw out a runner on an attempted steal. A second base. A so Ruiz in the Nats two run first. A two out RBI single to center field to tie the game at two. And then he stole Second base. A Ruiz in the top of the second threw at O'Neill Cruz on an attempted steal of second base. Ruiz in the bottom of the third, a leadoff seven pitch walk despite having been down to the count of one point one two. Ruiz in the Nats three run fifth, a one out RBI single to left field on a one two pitch to tie the game at four. But he also in the inning had the big base running mistake. But like I said, a lot of hits for the Nats in this game. Uh, Juan Soto on Wednesday afternoon. Was an Nats starting right fielder, number two batter, one for five with an RBI double. He in the Nats one run second had a two out RBI double to right field for a 3-2 Nats lead. Cesar Hernandez on Wednesday afternoon as an Nats starting second baseman and number one batter, two for five with an RBI single and another single. A-Ray Adrianza on Wednesday afternoon had two hits. He was an Nats starting third baseman and number eight batter. He went two for five with two singles. He did strike out three times, but uh, he had a good looking one out bunt single in the Nats three-run fifth inning. Uh, We also had Luis Garcia on Wednesday afternoon. That starting shortstop and number five batter, one for five with a single. He left eight men on base. It's not often that you see something like that, but Garcia in game three of this series, leaving eight men on base. You may recall Nelson Cruz in game one of this series left seven men on base. Uh, Also, Luis Garcia did commit an error on Wednesday afternoon. Top of the six committed a two-out fielding error on a grounder hit up the middle by O'Neill Cruz. Uh, Garcia bobbled the baseball in trying to transfer it from his glove to his throwing hand. So a lot to take in with this 8-7 loss for the Nats to the Pirates at Nationals Park on Wednesday afternoon. And we haven't even yet addressed the Nats pitching in the game, but uh, I can actually summarize that up pretty quickly. Uh, the Nats pitching on Wednesday afternoon was really bad. Uh, the Nats pitching lately has been good. The Nats pitching on Wednesday afternoon Was not good. Uh, Paolo Espino was the Nats starting pitcher on Wednesday afternoon, and he struggled. Uh, He allowed four runs in four and a third innings. He gave up five hits, two home runs, a double, and two singles. He did have four strikeouts versus one walk. His pitch count wasn't that high, 66 pitches, but he just was not on. Uh, Paolo in the top of the first gave up a two-run opposite field homer to Brian Reynolds to left center field for a 2-0 Pirates lead. Paolo in the top of the fourth gave up a one-out solo homer to Daniel Vogel back to right field to tie the game at three. And then the Nats bullpen. Uh, it on Wednesday afternoon was brutal. Five Nats relievers combined to allow four runs in four and two-thirds innings on four hits, four walks, a hit-by-pitch, and a wild pitch. Uh, We had what happened with Steve Cishek, and you know, again, he only faced one batter. He threw just two pitches. I think it's debatable whether Cishek should have been yanked from the game as quickly as he was. Now, Cishek has not had a very good season. That's true, but Davey Martinez lately has been leaning on the likes of Carl Edwards Jr. and Kyle Finnegan and Tanner Rainey a good amount. And what we saw in this game, especially from Edwards, was that he just was off. Ciszek faced his one batter, threw his two pitches, got the two outs. Carl Edwards Jr. then came into the game and he did not look good. He officially allowed three runs in one inning. He in the top of the six allowed a run on a leadoff homer by Brian Reynolds to right field to cut the Nats lead to 6-5 and the homer was some shot when it projected 420 feet for StatCast. Edwards in the top of the sixth also gave up a two-out single to Josh Van Meter on an 0-2 pitch. And then Edwards in the top of the seventh gave up a leadoff single to Michael Perez, then issued a wild pitch, and then issued a six-pitch walk of Hoy Park. Edwards was not on, and then he was brought in for another inning, and he was still not on and didn't get a single out in that inning. And then Kyle Finnegan came into the game in that inning, and he had problems. Finnegan came into the game top of the seventh, Runners on first and second, no outs. Nats clinging to a 6-5 lead. And things did not go well for Finnegan. He gave up a one-out, three-run homer to Brian Reynolds to left field on a 1-2 pitch for an 8-6 Pirates lead. The homer was Brian Reynolds' third home run of the game. As, yes, we also had that in this game on Wednesday afternoon. A guy hitting three home runs. Uh, Finnegan in the top of the seventh also issued a two-out-five pitch walk of Daniel Vogelback. Then Sam Clay came into the game, and he was off. Uh, Clay in the top of the eighth, faced three batters, got just one out. He issued a leadoff, a six-pitch walk of O'Neill Cruz, then issued a hit-by-pitch of Jack Zawinski. It was up to Andres Machado to restore sanity to the Nats pitching in this game. And restore sanity Machado did. He tossed one and two-thirds scoreless innings. Machado did a nice job, came into the game in the top of the eighth. Runners on second and third, one out. Nats down 8-7, and he recorded two outs on five pitches to preserve the Nats being down by one run. So like I said, a wild and crazy game for the Nats on Wednesday afternoon, and ultimately a loss, an 8-7 loss to the Pirates at Nationals Park. Next up for the Nats is a four-game series against the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park Friday through Monday. On Monday, as you probably know, is July 4th. Uh the Nats in this 2022 regular season have gotten worked by the Marlins. 1 and 8 are the Nats so far against the Marlins. Uh Game 1, Friday evening at 6:05 Josiah Gray Will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game two Saturday afternoon at 4:05. Jackson Tatro will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game three Sunday afternoon at 1:35. Eric Fetty will be the Nats starting pitcher. And game four Monday morning. Yes, Monday morning, the annual uh, morning start time for a Nats game at Nationals Park on July fourth, 11:05 a.m. First pitch. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. Well, for the Orioles, their series at the Seattle Mariners ended up not going so well. O's lost at the Mariners 9-3 on Wednesday, so the O's ended up losing two of three games in the series. O's in the 2022 regular season now are 35-42. and 42. The O's on Wednesday went with a bullpen game, and this ended up being a tale of two games for Orioles pitching. The first two pitchers who the O's used, Austin Voth and Nick Vespi, had some problems. Uh, both three runs, one earned in three innings, as yes, the O's did have some defensive problems in the game. Three errors, including two errors on back-to-back plays by third baseman Jonathan Adouz in a three-run Mariners second. Then Vespi came into the game and he was charged with six runs and got just one out. Yes, yeah, six runs in a third of an inning as the Mariners scored six runs in the bottom of the fourth. That will ravage a relief pitcher's ERA. Six runs in a third of an inning. The Mariners scored six runs in the bottom of the fourth. Brian Baker then came into the game. He did allow multiple inherited runners to score, including issuing a one-out run scoring wild pitch in that six-run Mariners fourth. But officially, Baker, Dylan Tate, and Jorge Lopez combined for four and two-thirds scoreless innings with six strikeouts. Lopez was outstanding again, scoreless bottom of the eighth with three strikeouts. Jorge Lopez now for the 2022 regular season has an ERA of 0.73 and a whip of 0.81. When your ERA and your whip are close to being the same, that's usually a sign that you're having a great season, and Jorge Lopez is having a A great season. Uh, The Orioles' offense on Wednesday, just three runs, just eight hits. Uh, The O's did work four walks, but went just one for eight with runners in scoring position. Two bright spots were Cedric Mullins and Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, Mullins on Wednesday as the Orioles' starting center fielder and number one batter, two for three with two singles and two walks. He got on base four times, and he made yet another great defensive play. Uh, Mullins in the bottom of the third, a terrific running, backhanded, and leaping catch. At the right center field, warning track of a deep flyout by Carlos Santana for the second out. Uh, Cedric Mullins is covering so much ground right now in the outfield. He has been so good defensively, especially lately in center field. And Mullins is coming along offensively here. Mullins in this series, four for 11, with two doubles, two singles, and three walks. Uh, he in this month of June has an on base percentage of 352. I do still want to see Mullins hit for more power, but. He has been getting on base a lot lately, and the defense has been superb. And then with Ryan Mountcastle, he on Wednesday has the Orioles starting DH and number six batter. Two for three with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. Uh, Mountcastle is having an outstanding June. Ryan Mountcastle in this month of June on base percentage of .345, slugging percentage of .614. Uh, That is ridiculous, slugging .614 for the month. Mountcastle in June. Has hit for a lot of power. So, Cedric Mullins and Ryan Mountcastle, each guy this season got off to a really bad start. Each guy in June has been impressive. Uh, next up for the O's, a three-game series at the Minnesota Twins, Friday through Sunday. Game 1, Friday night at 8:10. Spencer Watkins will be the Orioles starting pitcher. Game 2, Saturday afternoon at 2:10. Jordan Lyles will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And Game 3, Sunday afternoon at 2:10, Tyler Wells will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 348, will feature not one, but two guests. We have no game for the Nationals on Thursday, no game for the Orioles on Thursday. So we have some open real estate for Friday's show. Uh, I'll discuss commanders, including the greatness of Terry McLaurin, with Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor of. For sharp football analysis. uh, Dan is one of the bright minds in NFL analytics, so prepare for some high level commanders conversation. Uh, And I'll talk Wizards as NBA free agency is beginning and as the Wiz reportedly have agreed on this trade with the Denver Nuggets for Monty Morris and Will Barton with Scott Jackson, my former colleague at the Team 980 and a man who knows the Wizards very well. He hosted the Wizards postgame show for years. He has had very good relationships with people with the Wizards past and present. Have a great rest of your Thursday and I'll talk to you on Friday. The wheels are in motion. Things are happening even as <laughs> <laughs> The wheels are in motion. The wheels are in motion. Things are
2: happening.